So the microphone's on and it works. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm looking around and I'm seeing that not one lady was brave enough to come here tonight. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, this talk is, you know, you can listen to it by anybody, but it is definitely ordered towards men. And uh, I recognize not everybody here is going to be Catholic, um, but I'm always going to speak as a Catholic priest. It's, it's in my bone marrow, and it's, it's not something I can ever shuffle off. So it is uh, intended for men, and it's definitely coming to you from a Catholic perspective, but I think that uh, it's something that anybody could appreciate. Um, first, why don't we start with a prayer, shall we? Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, first of all, the genesis of this... This evening's talk actually is in, just in gratitude to the Knights of Columbus. Uh, because the Knights have done so much for our parish. And I know that for a long time, there's been a lot of Knights in the parish who have thought to themselves, we want to do more than just sell Christmas trees, right? Um, but unfortunately, you've got a pastor who's running a one-man show, trying to build a church and do everything else, so... But, you know, every once in a while, we, we, can, we can do this. But, you know, here's a talk that I've been wanting to give for a long, long time about men's spirituality, okay? And I'll tell you what was the origin of this idea. For years, I've been deeply moved by a demographic report that I read, which was published by the government of Switzerland. Okay, some of you might have seen this. I made it a bulletin column, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's something I reference very often, but let me just repeat it for those of you who haven't, okay? Here's a study that was conducted in 1994, published in the year 2000, and reveals astounding facts with regard to the, general trend, the generational transmission of faith and religious values, especially with, for a man's role, okay? So the study, the most pertinent finding states, quote, it is the religious practice of the father of the family that, above all, determines the future attendance at or absence from church for the children. The study reports, if both father and mother attend church regularly, 33% of their kids become regular churchgoers, one in three. Okay. 41% go every once in a while. A quarter of the kids don't go at all if both mom and dad go regularly. Now, if the father goes every once in a while, but the mom is faithful, 3% of the kids will attend regularly. 3%. 59% attend every once in a while, and 38% never show up again. If the father doesn't practice at all, and the mother shows up every once in a while, 2% of the kids will attend church regularly. 2%. 37% every once in a while. 60% never show up at all. Okay, but this is the astounding fact. If the father of the family attends church regularly, and the mother is either irregular or non-practicing, okay, but if, if dad is always on the ball, 
the percentage of children regularly practicing the faith rises. Rises even over when both parents are going regularly. Dad alone, 38% of the kids grow up to, to grow up to become regular churchgoers. Still not a great number, but it's up. Okay? 44% go irregularly and only 18% never show up at all in church. Now that's astounding. So if the father doesn't go to church, here's your, your takeaway fact. If dad doesn't go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotion is, only one kid in 50 becomes a regular churchgoer. One in 50. If dad does go regularly, regardless of what mom does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the kids will become churchgoers at least partially. Okay? One of the reasons that's suggested for this distinction is that children tend to take their cues about domestic life from dad. I'm sorry, d- domestic life from mom, while their conceptions about the world outside come from dad. If dad takes God seriously, the message to the kids is God should be taken seriously. Now, as a priest, just based on anecdotal evidence, all that rings true. Men have a responsibility of leadership. The well-being of other people depends on it. But it is a responsibility that is very easy to ignore. Consider this, I've mentioned this in homilies before if you've ever heard it. and I'll mention it again, so you definitely will hear it. But, you know, no creature in the world except a human being needs to be reminded of who he is. You'll say to a man, come on now, be a man, man up, right? You'll never say that to your pet. You're never going to turn to your dog and say, come on now, be a dog. What's the matter with you? Dog up, right? Doesn't happen. They already are. They already are entirely who they are. But as a human being... Especially as a man, you have to fight to become who you were made to be. Now, this is incredibly un-PC, but here's hoping that the whole era of PC is just going to be dead and gone real soon, okay? Because it's really stupid. Um, But honestly, time has passed. It's it's nothing but falsehood, okay? Oh, by the way, let me make a little digression there. Just a little digression here. You all, you all know what the trouble with political correctness is. This has nothing to do with men's spirituality. This is just a digression. It's based on ideology. You know what ideology is? Ideology is when you form your opinions about what you're supposed to do based first on an idea in your head. The Catholic Church never acts that way. We base our ideas on how we're supposed to act based on objective reality. If it's raining outside, you open up an umbrella. Ideology doesn't do that. Ideology begins with an idea in your head of how things ought to be, then projects that out onto the world and demands that everybody toe the line. Surprisingly, it doesn't work because it's not real. PC is ideology. It can't last because it doesn't have any truth in it. I think I see the world generally slowly turning back to to reality. So, you know, I'm not going to... That's, a, that's all digression. I was not, I'm not going to talk to... to nothing's PC, uh, hopefully, ever again. But certainly not tonight, okay? Um, but a man is born with a spirit that longs for this fight. I'm not talking about a fight that's violent. I'm talking about a fight that is essentially a spiritual battle. One of my favorite quotations comes from a Christian writer. His name's John Eldridge. It's deep in his heart, every man longs for three things. A battle to fight, 
an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. That is so true. Every man longs in his heart for three things. A battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. Your job and mine is to accept the challenge. The challenge is fulfilled in your faith. The fight is spiritual, all right? It is the greatest of all adventures. You start saying yes to God, watch out, okay? Watch out, because where that adventure could lead has no limit. It's only limited by how much you say yes to the Lord. And the greatest beauty of all, the greatest beauty of all is the truth of the gospel. And that is what we are rescuing from the errors of secularism. And they are errors, not based in reality, they're based in ideology. Okay? Now, here's the thing. You want to fight that fight? You need strength. You do not have that strength yourself. You need direction. You know, there's no such thing as an army of one. You need a general to lead you. You need a commanding officer to guide you. You need to be told where to direct that energy, and you need the strength, you need the arms to fight it properly. This is where we turn to our faith for this spiritual fight. Now, the battle is hidden, but it's real. This world is under attack by Satan. If anybody, if anybody doesn't think that the devil is real, you know, man up. Here's one of my favorite images to tell people about the reality of the power, the intelligent power of evil. Satan is not like a opposite of God. God has no opposite. It's an angel, a fallen angel. And you want to have proof of the reality of this. I would ask you to, I would ask you to look at the, the concentration camps in World War II. Okay, take a look at Auschwitz. I visited Auschwitz. And you'll see these rooms, you know, mountains of shoes that were taken off of children before the children were executed. You'll find rooms full of gold fillings that were extracted from people's teeth before they were gassed to death and incinerated. Mountains of, of, of human wreckage and carnage. And you look at that and you say, you know what? Man isn't that bad without help. There was some kind of power behind that evil. Okay, so understand, the world is under attack and the power of the devil is real. Here's some statistics since the year 2000. 14 million Catholics have left the faith since the year 2000. Religious education down 25%. Catholic school attendance down 19%. That's one in five. Infant baptism down 28%. It's almost one in three. Adult baptism since for 16 years down 31%. And this is the one that's a real clincher. Catholic marriages are down 41%. I can tell you just anecdotally, you don't get a lot of people coming to the church to get married anymore. And it's not just because we don't have the most beautiful church in town, okay? Lots of brides wouldn't want to get married in this church, but they still show up. Something's going on. Part of the reason this has happened is because men are not witnessing to their faith. They've left the faith, or they practice their faith timidly, or they're only minimally committed to passing on their faith to their children. And if the church is in decline... It's because men haven't led the way. Men haven't fought the fight. Now, God overcomes evil by the power of good. 
And that's really something that's important to understand. He all, you look at the crucifix, you'll see what conquers right here. Everybody thought that the Messiah, that was long-awaited Messiah, was going to you know, bust out a sword and beat the Romans all the way back to the emperor in Rome. Nobody was expecting him to be killed on the cross like a common criminal. Nobody was expecting that. But that's how he conquered. And that's how we're going to conquer. The power of good always overcomes the power of evil. Okay? We need to do the same. And what we need to do then is we need to act in accordance with our nature as men. Okay? The answer to God's call is always charity, and it's always an ex- authentic expression of authentic love to, to, to truly be yourself. So I, want to ask, I just want to ask two questions this evening. Two questions. First of all, what does it mean to be a man? And secondly, what does it mean for a man to love? Because if we're going to conquer the power of evil with the power of good, you're going to do it according to your nature. You're not going to do it like a girl would do it. You're not going to do it like a child would do it. You're going to do it, you know, grace perfects nature, Thomas Aquinas told us. Okay? You're going to do it as a man would do it. And it's always going to be love. So we've got to answer those two questions. What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to love? Okay. Um, when it comes to understanding men's spirituality, we happen to have an incredible gift. You know what that gift is? The gift is that God became a man. He didn't become a woman. He became a man. Okay? Now that's not to say that all humanity wasn't taken up into God in the, in, the, in, the, in the mystery of the incarnation, but don't get me wrong. What I mean to say is, guys, maybe in God's all provident planning, he, he knew we needed a little bit extra help. Okay? You, know, you look at boys and girls in grade school. Who grows up faster? Who, who matures faster? The girls do. Right? It's part of the reason why, it's part of the reason why you know, up until... Pope John Paul II's institute started having altar girls. Part of the reason why altar boys were altar boys, because the boys need the boys to learn to you know, man up, learn to grow up. Girls, it comes naturally to them. It's, it's effortless. But we got a great advantage. God became a man. Okay? Here's Pontius Pilate. On the, day in which, uh, in, on the day in which our Lord was about to be handed over and, and to be crucified, he said, Ece homo, behold the man. He thought he was just talking about the man from Galilee. He did not realize that inadvertently he was making a much deeper statement. God became a man and gave us the very definition of what a man is. You want to understand masculinity? Take a look at Jesus Christ. Okay? Everything in his life tells you who you are supposed to be. And the perfection of who he is is on the cross. All right? What is the cross? This is him sacrificing himself for another. What does it mean to be a man? You sacrifice yourself for somebody else's good. That's what it means. Okay? Defending the innocent and defending the guilty from the wickedness and snares of the devil. Now, you realize we're, we're, this is a little bit more of a digression, but we, you know, we're living in times in which we are, we're seeing the absolute height of arrogance. And you go back to this idea of ideology. And when people are thinking they're defining masculinity for themselves or femininity for themselves, right? You you know, this bathroom debate flies in the face of the most basic biology that any kindergartner knows. Okay, there's a difference between boys and girls. You know what's interesting about that? Your masculinity begins in your soul. Your body is an expression of the soul that God gave you. Your body is not an accident. 
It is an, an essential expression of who your true identity is as a man. Okay? You're, you're spiritual before you're physical. So we want to reject this idea. We make it up in our, in our own mind. Here's another idea we want to reject, though. Okay? Another idea that we want to reject. And that is the world's concept of masculinity. Let me give you a quick definition of the world's, that is a worldly, secular identity of masculinity. Real, real quick identity. Okay? Here's what it is. It's that the measure of your virility is your sexual indulgence, right? And this has been, this has been the case for eons and eons. Um, uh, the, the, the more you hop from bed to bed, right, the more you're virile, the more you're a man. That's part of it. It's part of the world's understanding of manhood that we are throwing out. We're rejecting this. Secondly, power is the measure of your identity. Who are you? Oh, well. I'm the president of the National Broadcasting Company, son. Right. Who are you? Who are you? I'm the chief executive officer of Citicorp, right? What's my identity? It's what I do. If I'm not doing anything that's powerful, I have a lesser identity. We're rejecting that idea, okay? Thirdly, money is the measure of your value. It's one of the, my, my favorite, transparent, um, I, uh, most revealing um, ideas is when people say, how much is a man worth? Worth, as if you could put a dollar figure on a man's value. Three things we're rejecting. Sexual indulgence is the measure of your virility. Power is the measure of your identity. And money is the measure of your value. Okay? You build on those ideals, you build on sand. Now, bodily indulgence, power, and money, would you believe these are the very three things that Jesus himself struggled with when he was tempted in the desert? Let me read you the passage. Okay? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, You shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up on their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And with that, the devil left him for a time. Bread. First temptation. The emptier a man's soul, the deeper is needed for bodily indulgence. Let me repeat that. The emptier a man's soul, the deeper his need for bodily indulgence. Temple Mount. The emptier a man's soul, the deeper his need to prove his power. The emptier a man's soul, the deeper his need to prove his power. Kingdoms of the world. The emptier a man's soul, the deeper his need to own and to consume. Understand, God owns nothing. His greatness is in his being. 
And our greatness is in our being. That's the way we're made to be. Jesus rejects his false understanding of manhood and the cross-less glory that it entails, and he chooses a different path. He chooses the path of humility. Okay? When we talk about our conversion to Christ, we talk about our acceptance of his identity. When we talk about sin, we talk about what takes us away from his identity. Consider this for a moment. You're made in God's image, but sin turns you into a creature of your own making. It's a frightening thought. You're made in God's image, and you become more and more in his image the more you choose to say yes to him. Sin turns us into creatures of our own making, and a very ugly thing that is. The greatest glory is to be surrendered to God, and being surrendered to God means being in control of yourself. If you don't have control of yourself, you can't put the interests of others ahead of your own. Okay? We receive from God first. Only then can we give away. Nemo dat quod non habet, they used to say. One cannot give what one does not have. So sometimes people will hear this and they'll think, oh gosh, yeah, I've got to get to work on that, right? I've got to get to work on those three little things, those three little fights. Um, and when I get the, that battle behind me, well, then I can start. As if to say... Um, you know, first, let me be worthy, then I'll be willing. I got news for you. You're never going to be worthy. God's never going to wait until you're worthy. He's going to wait only until you're willing. And it's in willing that you'll win the, that threefold fight. It's in, it's in being willing to that that you'll finally be the one who is able to conquer. Okay, So you get started. It's in the course of the fight that we actually get the fight behind us. Okay? Just like Christ fought in the desert. Just like our forefathers fought in years past to hand down the faith to us. Um, To live without this fight, without a patrimony to defend, without a steady struggle for the truth. This is not living, this is merely existing. One of my favorite quotations from Benedict XVI. You were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. You were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. So here's some things that any committed Catholic man can do. Soldier wants to stay in good physical shape or he can't fight, right? Same's true for you. Same's true for the spiritual fight. You won't have the strength if you don't get your keister into spiritual shape, okay? So here's some things that you need to do. Daily. Daily you need to pray. Until you realize that prayer is the most important thing in your life, you will never have time to pray. Don't be ashamed about praying before meals. Don't be ashamed about praying before meals even in a public place. And recognize that until you know that prayer is the most important thing in your life, you'll always find excuses. You will always say you don't have enough time. I had a spiritual director, um, died about seven years ago. This was the very first thing he said to me back when I was a priest. He said, you know what your problem is? You're not praying enough. And I go, I don't have time, I don't have time. Just like everybody says, right? I don't have time. And he says, tell you what, you start praying 30 minutes for the Blessed Sacrament every day or just don't bother coming back to see me because you're wasting my time and yours. You know, that's the kind of thing we need to say to ourselves. If I'm not going to bother, dedicate, I'm not saying 30 minutes, right? But you're not going to dedicate time every day to pray. Just stop fooling yourself. You're not even serious. You're not even serious. Okay, so get serious first. Secondly, an examination of conscience every day. If you don't have an examination of conscience, Google it. They're easy to find. 
Make sure it's a Catholic examination of conscience. Okay, I don't know what other people are telling you to other people are telling you to, to, to look at, but there's lots of Catholic examinations of conscience. You know, every single night, just a few minutes, it can take two minutes before you go to sleep. Which is death in miniature, by the way. Every single day is like a it's like a little microcosm of life, right? You wake up in the morning, almost like a child in early life, thinking, Oh, I got a whole day before me, I'm getting all this stuff done. Next thing you know, the sun's going down. You're like, what happened to the time? Kind of like middle age, right? You look, at the, you, look at, you look at your watch and you don't know how 10 years got behind you. Well, nighttime, it's like a death in miniature. And that's why God gives, us, gives this to us. Doing a good, good examination of conscience. And you recognize not only what you've done wrong, but you also recognize what you've done right. Give thanks to God for his blessings. Okay? Give thanks to God for his blessings. That's a practice we need to get into. Say a little act of contrition. Tiny little prayer. That's all you have to do. But daily, pray and an examination of conscience. Weekly mass. If you're not going to mass every week, you know, God bless you. You're not serious. Get serious. It's a commandment, right? Keep holy the Lord's day. How often does the Lord's day come around? Every single week, all right? That doesn't mean you go sometimes. That means you go all the time. Unless you can't. Unless it's ice and snow, granted. It's not an absolute, right? Unless you're sick, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, even if you don't get a lot out of the homily, even if you don't like the music, the Mass is the greatest source of strength for your spiritual battle because it's where you get the bread of life. It's where you get Christ himself in the Eucharist. Jesus said, this is my body. <clears throat> People hear that and say, well, yeah, not, you mean like a symbol? No, no, this is my body. Oh, you, you mean like a memorial? No, no, this is my body. Oh, I get it, it's bread. That's what we do. <laughs> No, this is him. Hidden under the appearance of bread, but he's here. That's what you get in Mass. You need that, okay? You need that. It's where you meet the Lord. Here's another thing to do weekly. Keep the Sabbath. Sunday needs to be a day that belongs to God. For a lot of men, the only difference between Saturday and Sunday is that, you know, college plays on Saturday and the pros play on Sunday. It's the only difference for how many guys. What you, here's, here's the spirit of the Sabbath. Listen. A day in which anything that keeps you from focusing on the Lord is something you don't do that day. Take your noxious tasks, don't do them. Maybe the news gets under your skin. Don't read the news. It's a time in which everything in your day, centered on mass, helps you to keep your focus on the Lord. Consider this. What guy would not have a, a, a photo of his sweetheart in his wallet. He knows what she looks like, but he keeps it there. Why? Because he needs to remind himself, right? That's the same spirit of the Sabbath. We need reg- God gave us the Sabbath because we need to be reminded of him. And if we're not regularly reminded of him, we forget. You start skipping the spirit of the Sabbath, okay? Or just merely reducing it to going to Mass. And then every other thing is just the same. You got your work, you got your chores, you mow the lawn. I don't know, whatever it is that you're doing. Get ready for your work the next day. Um, You want to carve out that time because you need, we all need to be reminded of the Lord. Okay, keep the Sabbath every week. Monthly, get to confession. Large numbers of Catholic men don't go to confession. I know because I hear confessions. And then it's been, I'm pretty good, Father. It's been nine months. It just, you don't have to be every single month. It's not like, you know, there's a... 
It's not like it's a precept of the church that every month, but I'm saying this is a good spiritual practice. Every four weeks, every six weeks, generally speaking, get to confession every month. What do you do in confession? You tell your best friend you're sorry for what you did. Jesus is your best friend. And you say it out loud. There's something incredibly healing about that. People say, I don't have anything anything to confess. You don't know yourself. Could you spend a month in an an RV touring Alaska with your spouse and say not one thing you could have to say that you're sorry for after that? You couldn't go a day, you couldn't go two hours without having to say something you're sorry for, right? It's because you know the other person. You think you can go you think you can go a month without going to confession? You don't know God. Okay? Get with a program, all right? Get to confession every month. And and the more you go, the more you're gonna know what you really need to work on. Okay? It's something that builds on itself. Here's something else to do every month. Build fraternity with other Catholic men. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. And we'll get to this in a moment, but you know, if you don't have other men in your life who are sharing this mission with you, you're not becoming who you're meant to be. Every month, put it on the calendar. Somebody, you, don't, you don't have to get together and talk about God, right? You don't have to get together and talk about religion, but Somebody who's got the same spirit as you and you're getting together with them at least once a month. Something you need to do, okay? So, so what does it mean to be a man? Okay. Right here. And now, how does a Catholic man love? Here's a word that's lost its meaning in today's society. If there's ever a word whose meaning has been diluted to non-existence, that word has got to be love, right? It almost means nothing now. And here's another additional difficulty. A lot of men are really uncomfortable using the word love at all, right? You heard of bromance kind of thing? I mean, it makes men uncomfortable. Don't talk to me about love. I don't want to talk about that. Unless they're referring to like romantic feelings for a lady, they don't even want to hear the word, right? Um, we got to get over that. We got to get over that. Why? Because Jesus' commandment is love one another as I've loved you. There's no getting around that. What we need to do is come to a deeper understanding of what the word means. There's zero sentimentality in that. Okay? But everything that our Lord taught reduces to this command. Love isn't secondary. It's the mission. And like I said, we're not going to love like a woman loves. We're not going to love like a child loves. You're going to love like a man loves. So, you know, what does that look like? Okay, once again, let me contrast this with a secular understanding of manhood. Um, This comes from, I got this idea from a bishop. His name is Bishop Olmsted. And he said, you know what the, the secular world, the, the secular image for, for manhood is? It's the character James Bond. Okay. Various actors have taken turns portraying James Bond, who's proposed to modern audiences what it means to be manly. But consider, he's never a father. He never commits to the responsibility of any other person. No commitment. He's never faithful to one woman. In fact, he doesn't even try. Okay? Here's a man whose relationships are shallow and purely utilitarian. The height of irony, 40-year-old man, James Bond, who has no bonds. Okay? So you want to contrast this with what our Lord told us. Okay? Aquinas tells us the definition of love. And this turns all the world's sentimentality on its head, all of our vacuous, vapid meanings of love on its head. Love means willing the good of another as other. That's what it means. That means that you do what's best for somebody else regardless of what it costs you. That's what love means. Willing the good of another as other. Doing what's best for somebody else regardless of what it costs you. It means constant giving and it means commitment. Now, 
I know I'm talking to Knights of Columbus group here. I know you all are committed and all this good stuff. But, you know, help me spread the word. Share it with your kids. Share this with your grandkids. Men fear commitment, right? Don't they? Fight or flight. That's what a man's uh, two options are. Trouble comes along, fight or flight. And when it's a long fight, we usually choose flight, right? Begins with a spiritual commitment. Commitment is necessary to produce any worthy result. You ever heard people say, I'm spiritual but not religious? Very common, right? Can I tell you why that's so stupid? Okay, here's why that's really stupid. First of all, I always like to say, Satan is spiritual but not religious. So he's a lousy example. Um, But spirituality is what religion produces. Imagine somebody says... um, uh, you know, I, I love football, but I don't like hash marks or goalposts. Well, yeah, that's what makes the game possible. Imagine somebody says, you know, I, I love music, but I hate notes. And I hate guitars, and I hate pianos, and I hate strings. I hate all that stuff, and I hate meter and tempo, but I love music. So, like, no, wait a minute. That's what makes music possible. Without those things, there's, obviously, there's, there's no music. And without religion, you don't get spirituality. You know what you get when you say I'm spiritual but not religious? You get God except with no Ten Commandments. Which means you end up worshipping yourself. That's basically what you end up worshipping, not the true God, but a version of yourself. Doing whatever you feel like. That stuff of religion, like hymns and altars and candles and pulpits and all these things, it's never the end in itself. Never. But without this stuff, you don't get spirituality. Just like you don't get music without notes. And you know what's really interesting about that? When you really love music, you love the things that make music possible. If you really love music, you know, you'll, you'll love a, a, a 55 Stratocaster, right? Or a, or a million dollar Stradivarius. Not for its own sake, but it's, it's just part of what makes music possible when you love music. And when you love the Lord, we have real spirituality, you end up loving, not disdaining the things of religion. So that's, that, that's, a, that's a dodge. We need to get around that, okay? Um, we also want to get around this stereotypical understanding of machismo, projecting an image of toughness. You've seen every guy does this at some point or another. It's actually a thin veneer for a fear of commitment. Machismo is a thin veneer that covers a fear of genuine commitment. And behind the veneer, as any mature person can see, is a small soul mired in adolescent fear. We need to get past that. With Christ, we will the good of another. Okay? Now, let's talk about three ways in which we're going to actually do that. Three ways in which we're going to will the good of another. First is the title of our talk, Friend of Christ, Band of Brothers. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier. Every month you want to get together with a, a man who's sharing the mission of holiness. Find a way to make it happen, okay? But consider this. From the very beginning of his ministry on earth, Jesus called men to join him. He called together a band of brothers he called together his apostles. One of these days it's going to roll around in the Sunday homily and I'm going to tell you all about this. You know, when Jesus said, come follow me to his apostles, that's what a rabbi would say to someone who he deemed worthy of becoming like himself. Come follow me. There's actually two, this is digressing now, but you go back to the, old, you go back to the New Testament times. Your top rabbis, um, um, people like Rabbi Gamaliel, they'd have 72 followers. Your run-of-the-mill rabbis have three or four followers. Jesus chose 12. Why 12? Because that was an image of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
But whenever a great rabbi would approach a student and suggest that you know, he would follow him, he'd say one of two things. The student would say, he'd come and try to impress him with his knowledge of scripture. His, you know, the kids by the age of 10 would have half the Old Testament memorized in the ancient world. Kind of hard to imagine. But they read Old Testament instead of playing video games. They learned a lot. Okay? And they would come forward and they would try to impress their rabbi. The rabbi would say one of two things. He would either say, come follow me, which is a way of saying, son, you can be like me. Right? Or he'd say, son, go ply your father's trade. That was a way of saying, thanks, thanks for playing, but you're not good enough. So, you know, when our Lord says, come follow me, what he's saying to each one of us is, you can be like me. You try to imagine, you know, Michael Jordan or LeBron James getting off the stretch limo in downtown Chicago and seeing some kids playing pickup hoops in the city and saying, hey guys, I can teach you how this is done. Let me show you. You, I see, you, got, you got talent. You're good enough to be like me. Okay. That, that's what our Lord says to us when he says, come follow me. So he said this, and he called himself a band of brothers onto this earth. And there, that was necessary. That was necessary. So you've got apostles who are brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And down through history, here's what you discover. Some of the most important movements in our church were spurred on by men who were, you know, iron sharpening iron, one helping out the other. Here's an, here's an example. St. Gregory Nazianzen and St. Basil, fourth century saints. They might not mean much to you, but what they did preserved the very faith we celebrate. Okay? Gregory Nazianzen, he preserved our understanding of the Trinity. I could talk to you for an hour about why that matters, but trust me, it does. Okay? Um, St. Basil, he preserved our understanding of the divinity of Christ. This wouldn't have happened if they weren't friends. It wouldn't have happened. Okay? Here's another one. St. Benedict calls together himself a band of brothers and a community of men. They do no less than preserve and maintain Western culture in the face of barbarian destruction. Band of brothers. That's the good that can come. Francis of Assisi and Dominic. Okay? Once again, iron sharpening iron. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Francis Xavier. Renewed the church in a time when it was just badly in need of renewal and evangelized the faith of the furthest reaches of the world. And here's one of my favorite examples. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Everybody's heard of C.S. Lewis, right? Everybody's heard of, you know, he's a professor at Oxford. And Tolkien, everybody knows about the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a Catholic. Lewis was an agnostic slipping into atheism. And Tolkien was, he's the one who convinced Lewis of the truth of God. It was, it was that male friendship, that brother on brother, that iron sharpening iron made it possible. You know, without, without Tolkien, Lewis, he'd still be an atheist. Who knows what we would have lost as a consequence. Okay, so once again, find a friend who shares with you the mission of holiness. You need this, okay? When you don't have this, one of two things happen. Either you start looking for that brotherhood in all the wrong places. Doesn't happen to anybody here in this room this evening, but you know, that's how street gangs get started, okay? They don't have anybody who's helping them in the right way, they find people who help them in the wrong way. And if that doesn't happen, people get isolated and alone. And you know the, the evil that can result from that. You've got to man up, okay? Um, most men lead friendless lives. This is a problem. They say the only friend they have is their wife. Trouble with that is you become less of who you're meant to be for your wife. You become less of who you're meant to be for your kids, Okay? So again, the first way in which we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going we're gonna to 
be friends to one another, friends of Christ, band of brothers. Okay. Secondly, a husband. Every man's called to be a father in some way. Okay. For some, it's priesthood. For others, it's marriage. But for everybody, it's commitment. Speaking to mostly married men here this evening. Okay. So let me, just, let me ask you to pass this message along. Maybe pass this message along to your kids. Boys need direction. Boys need to grow up learning that the purpose of their life is commitment to other people. If they don't learn that, they never mature. They need that. Okay? That's what the meaning of maturity is. The early years of life are for this formation. You know, kind of like a, a basic understanding of maturity. I might have mentioned this before, but you know, you say you look at the animal kingdom. And you find like newborn animals. And what do they do? They're constantly thinking about themselves, kicking everybody else away, trying to survive. It's necessary. But for them to become fully mature, they have to think about the good of somebody else. It's very similar for us. Maturity means thinking about somebody else. And if we don't teach that to boys, man, what you end up with is a world full of grown-up adolescents. Fully grown men, but they act like adolescents. You talk to young ladies, they say, there's no good men out there. They're all playing video games, right? They're right. Why? Because people aren't teaching their boys that, that life does not mean living after all of your own pursuits. The purpose of life is commitment to other people. Okay? So this is the way a man prepares for marriage even before he meets his bride. He sacrifices, like our Lord on the cross, sacrifices for the good of other people. And someday, and I think this is the greatest thing a guy could ever say to a lady, someday he meets his bride and he's able to say, I've been faithful to you from before I even knew you. And he can mean it. That's the kind of, that's the kind of young men we want to raise in this world. I've been faithful to you but from before I ever met you. Okay? Um, marriage in Christ is not merely a human endeavor. It's a great mystery. Like St. Paul explains, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. A great mystery. I mean this in reference to Christ and his church. Okay, it's not merely a human endeavor. This is something entirely higher a human desire for love is a longing for an infinite and eternal love. Men are called to love, be for their wives as Christ is to us, the church, his bride. Jesus was never a bachelor, right? Don't think that Jesus got a bride. He was never a bachelor. And what I need to do now, I need to have a little bit of a mention here of the meaning and purpose of human sexuality. When you're talking about marriage, okay, because this is essential. As something that our world has, has forgotten and that we need to be reminded of, human sexuality has a meaning and it has a purpose, right? And it does two things. It unites a man and a woman and it brings about new life. You think about, like, what actually happens in the act of sexual intercourse. Two things happen. It's possibility of new life, that's the biological. And then spiritually, there's this union that was never there before unites like at a soul level. And where's the only place in the world in which that union and the new life works? It's marriage. That's, why, that's the foundation of what the church teaches about sexuality. So the purpose of sexuality is about marriage, it's about procreation. And this world is going to be a great big mess until we learn that. An incredible wreck. Because we've got this idea in our heads 
ideology once again, right? Going back to what I said before, this idea in our heads that it doesn't have a meaning and a purpose. It's going to be whatever I want it to be. The wreckage of that ideology. I mean, I've heard it said nuclear war hasn't caused nearly as much destruction in human lives as a sexual revolution. Honestly, we would have been happier. We could have had a nuclear war and maintained this idea. I'll get to this in just a moment, okay? But, um, but, but this is what we have to understand. The only place where human sexuality makes any sense, when a child comes into this world, what does he need? Stability. He needs stability. He needs mom and dad to be together. And lo and behold, sexuality bonds a man and a woman together. It's perfect. Can you see the design? We can't ever forget it. We forget it, we're wrecking stuff. Okay. Now, what we need to do is we want to make sure that we aren't contributing to the wreck. So let me tell you about uh, three Greek words for love that I mentioned before. Eros, philia, and agape. They have a fourth word for love, storga, but I don't want to get into that. Um, The three Greek words for love, eros, philia, and agape. Eros is the root of the word erotic, but it doesn't always mean sexual. Eros is any love that's about you. So you love a nice ice-cold beer when you're tired and hot after a hard day's work, mowing the lawn, whatever it might be? Oh, yeah. Let me throw that to the back of my parched throat. You love that. What kind of love is that? It's eros. It's love, but it's all about you. Okay? Second kind of love. Philia. This is for friends. You love the other person, but if the other person starts being a jerk, what happens to that love? It starts to wane and fade. Okay? Like an old tire, eventually it wears out. It's part give, but it's also part take. That's the way friends are. A lot of people get married on philia. And God wants to raise it up to the highest level, which is agape. Agape is when it's all about you and zero about me. You want to know what agape is? You go into a hospital, right? And you look at a man who's there by his wife's side. And, you know, they're 80-something years old. And there's the drip, drip, drip of the machine and the beep, beep, beep of the machine. And she doesn't even know he's there. And he's doing it all for her. No thought of himself at all. Agape is uh, the story of a hero, the story of a soldier who throws himself on a grenade. There was one of those um, uh, just a few years ago in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. I was hearing a story of a kid. He got a, he got, uh, he got a full scholarship to uh, uh, Iowa State University, but he enlisted in the Army, went off to Afghanistan. Someone threw a grenade in the Hummer. He threw himself on the grenade. What kind of love is that? It's agape. That's what God is made of. That's what we want to rise to. That's what you want your marriage to be. Now, with that as your background, can you see how eros towards another human being is so destructive? What is eros? It's all about me. It's fine when it's a nice, cool breeze on a hot day. Okay? It's bad when it's taking another person and making them just a means to your own pleasure. That's the destruction. Okay? So, you know, our Lord, our Lord said um, um, that uh, when a man looks with lust on a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what we want to watch out for because honestly, it chips away at the agape, even at the philia, that we want to build up. Now, it's harder than it used to be. 
culture we're living in doesn't make it very easy. You know, once upon a time, if you wanted to find pornography, man, you really had to try, okay? You had to go to the worst part of town, and then you had to go to the seediest shop in the worst part of town, and then you had to get, you know, the guy who owned the shop to take you to the back rack where, you know, behind some, something covered up was the, when you had to tell the guy, I want one of those magazines, right? That's what you used to have to do. Now all you have to do is accidentally click on the wrong website. It's, it's tough. It's not, it's not easy at all. Um, how did this happen? Sexual revolution. The essence of the sexual revolution is ideology about sex. The idea that it doesn't have a meaning and a purpose, doesn't come from God, it's whatever I want it to be. What ended up happening? People made it self-serving. Who got hurt? Women got hurt. Children got hurt. Families got hurt. Relationships were destroyed. Lives were broken. One of my favorite things is the four predictions of Pope Paul VI on contraception. And by the way, we have to take this, this seriously too. Contraception strikes to the heart of the unitive and procreative means of marriage. They're meant to go together. Start messing with that, you're going to get trouble. He said, you people start contracepting, I'm telling you, four things are going to happen. He said this back in 1968. Four things. A general lowering of moral standards throughout society. A rise in infidelity. A lessening of respect for women by men. And the coercive use of reproductive technologies by governments. He's a prophet. All that stuff happened. Moral standards down throughout society? Yes or yes, okay? A rise in infidelity? (laughs) Astronomically. A lessening of respect for women by men. I challenge you to compare the lyrics from the latest rap hit song to something the Beatles sang, okay? (laughs) Night and day. Um, And coercive use of reproductive technologies by governments. I mean, now we got this point where, you know, we will withhold aid to a foreign government who's in a disaster, you know, unless they'll put into practice the latest priorities of Planned Parenthood. I mean, literally, there was, there was um, uh, in the tsunami in 2004, I think it was, India, Sri Lanka, all that. After that tsunami, would you believe that there was a town that they said they couldn't get food, but they shipped them a barge full of condoms? Isn't that amazing? Incredible how they can have those kinds of priorities. Paul VI, he's a, he's, he's a prophet. Okay? Cheap pleasure. It's caused loneliness, it's caused sadness, right? Broken lives, broken homes, broken hearts. What do we do? We rebuild. Who who does the rebuilding? You do. I do. We fight this fight every day, okay? Nobody achieves greatness without discipline. You got to be a master of yourself. And this is what the virtue of chastity is. People think chastity is a bad word. I'll tell you what chastity means. Chastity means having mastery over yourself. That's what it means. It's the integration of sexuality within the person. It means you're in charge. That's what it means. It means there's an inner unity of a man in his body and in his soul. It means that you are in charge. It's freedom, and it's freedom from enslavement, and it breaks the bonds of slavery to your passions. People think chastity means abstinence. It does not mean abstinence. Abstinence means no. Chastity means you're in charge. It means that God's commandments are guiding you, and you're strong enough to live by them. This is what we want. Chastity comes from reverence. Again, this is what gets you back to church, this is what gets you back to praying. Reverence for the sacredness of another human being and for the sacredness of your own person. Okay? 
This is why um, this is why pornography destroys the bonds that a man has with his spouse and with every other woman. It's a destruction that is very similar to adultery. Like our Lord said, everyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with his heart. And here's a taboo subject. It's almost, I, I tell you, I've never addressed it from the pulpit before. <clears throat> because, you know, it's just... It's just taboo on a Sunday morning, but you know I got to talk to you. Just talk. people often ask, "What's wrong with masturbation? What's wrong with it?" Can I tell you the best quote I ever heard to describe what's wrong with it? People say, "Oh, it's not wrong, right? That's natural, Everybody does that, right?" No, let me tell you. Here's the best quote. If you want to know what's wrong with it? it? Comes from C.S. Lewis. He said, "Quote: For me, the real evil of masturbation is that it takes an appetite when lawfully used, leads the individual out of himself." takes that appetite and turns it back in on one's self. It sends a man back into the prison of himself where he keeps a harem of imaginary brides. This harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices, and can always be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can ever rival. Among these shadowy brides, a man is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is ever made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. That's what's wrong with it. Okay? That's what's wrong with it. Time for renewal of chastity? Yes, it is. Who does it? You do. When do you begin? Today. Right? You end this day with an examination of conscience. But start the fight. And as I always say, you fall 10,000 times, you get up 10,000 times. Don't ever accept failure as the last word in your fight. Okay? Now lastly, fatherhood. How does a man, how does a man love? In fatherhood. This is, um, this, this is something, the abolition of fatherhood is something that has been the heart of the devil's activity from the very, very beginning. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 397. Here it says, here's the essence of the first sin. Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart. And abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what the first sin consisted of. Every subsequent sin would be disobedience to God and a lack of his goodness, a lack of trust in his goodness. This is what ended up happening. God created us with a sense of fatherhood. But we took that fatherhood and we reduced it. We started saying, why does God limit me? Why does God restrict my happiness? Why does God put these commandments on me? Why does God put these expectations on me? And when we do that, we become just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We take the father-son relationship of which we were created to be, and we turn it into the relationship of a master and a slave. And it's in sin that we rebel against God and we reject him as father and think that he's a master and it's the absence of, it's it's, it's, it's the devil's first attack. Original sin was the abolition of fatherhood. Our job is to bring it back. Okay? Our job is to bring it back. We continue this work of his. We continue this work of our Lord's. Today the attack on fatherhood by extension is multi-pronged and breathtakingly damaging. 41% 41% of children are born into, into um, unmarried homes. An increase of 700% from 1950. When out of wedlock birth was 6%. Try to imagine that. Okay. You get children raising, being raised these days saying, where's daddy? 
Where's daddy? What's the impact on a child? When his understanding of the world and of love and of the heavenly father, when the answer to the question of where's daddy is, he left us, or I don't know, which is what a kid often hears these days. We rebuild this. Okay? There's people in our society, they don't see this fatherhood, this fatherlessness as lamentable. Once again, this is getting back to the elimination of, uh, the elimination of um, ideology with facts. Don't be fooled by those who want to erase all distinctions between mothers and fathers. There is a distinction and it's good. You know, back in the French Revolution, um, there was a moment, they were gathered, a, um, uh, I believe it was before the, the, tennis, uh, the tennis court oath, they were all gathered and I think it was uh, Voltaire, he gets up and he goes, there's no difference between a man and a woman, no difference between a man and a woman. And they all screamed out, vive la différence. Long live the difference. God help us if we live in an androgynous world. Uh, you know, we're going to reject that. Okay? The distinctions are important. And here's one of my favorite, also my favorite images for this. You know, in, in Mandarin Chinese, which I do not speak, but I know on this one example. If you take the word for man, and you put it next to the word for woman, you know how they have a, characters for everything. You take the word for character for man, put it next to the character for, for woman, that creates the word good. It, it's, it's incredible that this is so, so basic. We want to make sure we continue to be, fight for this. Okay? Complementarity between a man and a woman, it's inherent in creation itself. A man's presence in the family is irreplaceable. Okay? Our life in Christ never reduces to do's and don'ts, but a relationship with a person. You place your life at his service, beginning in your home, beginning with yourself, forming yourself in the image of Christ, and you help to bring up, to build up what's been torn down. Now, to, to that end, I just want to end with a little prayer. Here's the woman, blessed mother, who raised the greatest man who ever lived. And like uh, Jesus said to, to John, who was standing at the foot of Calvary, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. She forms us as well. And she forms the image of Christ in each one of us. Real spiritual maturity will always have a devotion to the blessed mother. And here's one of my favorite prayers. I'm going to read this out loud. Y'all just pray with me in your heart, okay? It's a prayer to the Blessed Mother. It's written by a 19th century Jesuit priest. Uh, his name was uh, Father Léonce de Grand Maison. Okay? And uh, let's make this prayer our own. This is how we're going to end today. Holy Mary, Mother of God, preserve in me the heart of a child, pure and clean like spring water, a simple heart that does not remain absorbed in its own sadness, a loving heart that freely gives with compassion, a faithful and a generous heart that neither forgets good nor feels bitterness for any evil. Give me a humble heart that loves without asking to be loved in return, happy to lose itself in the heart of others, sacrificing itself in front of your divine Son, a great and unconquerable heart which no ingratitude can close and no indifference can tire, a heart tormented by the glory of Christ, pierced by his love with a wound that will not heal until heaven. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen, and God bless you all.